The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Undeterred is our message this morning. Acts chapter 21. Uh, Let's look at verse 4. After looking up the disciples, we stayed at Tyre seven days. And they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Then in verse 12. And when we had heard this, we as well as the local residents begin begging Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Two different groups of people, two different cities, begging Paul, don't go to Jerusalem, trouble awaits you. Father, we thank you for ministries that uh, lift up the name of Jesus, ministries that distribute Bibles, ministries around the world that proclaim Christ. Today, churches meet worldwide, and we pray that many will come to know Jesus. Thank you for churches in our community who name the name of Christ, and we pray for them. And now as we look at the scriptures, Father, we pray that you would teach us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Undeterred, persistent, and determined. Undeterred, persistent, and determined. Those would be good descriptions of the Apostle Paul. Wouldn't you agree with me? I mean, he's headed to Jerusalem. An offering has been taken up by the churches in Macedonia and Greece. And he's determined to take that offering to the Jewish brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. So a number of things are happening. One is there's a sense in which Paul is unifying the church. The money being taken up is being taken up from Gentile believers. They're in Greece and Asia Minor. He's bringing them to Jewish believers who are in Jerusalem. They had great need because there had been a famine in Jerusalem because the church was birthed in Jerusalem and they had shared many of their resources with the early believers and also persecution was beginning in Jerusalem and so people were losing their business and businesses and so there was a great need of the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. So Paul has this master idea Well, he takes an offering from Gentile brothers and sisters to take to Jewish brothers and sisters that further unite the church as they give of their generosity towards their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul would be undeterred. He would be persistent. He's determined to accomplish a task. Even though the counsel he receives is don't do it, he's going to do it anyway. He is undeterred. He is determined. He is persistent. There are many examples of that in history. Right now, I'm reading a uh, biography on the Wright brothers. McCullough is a guy who wrote the Wright brothers. And uh, Jim, for some reason, that won't come up. There you go. Uh, He's the guy who wrote the book, The Wright Brothers. If you hadn't read McCullough, he's a great American historian. I've read John Adams, Lewis, and Clark, and a couple other books by him. And his and the Wright brothers, fascinating. If you don't know anything about the Wright brothers, it's a New York Times bestseller right now. And uh, they were persistent, they were determined, and they were stubborn. Uh, If you know anything about the Wright brothers, they had a bicycle shop. You know that much. And you know they were the first people to ever fly. Uh, This is Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. But maybe what you don't know is they actually studied, designed, and built that first airplane. And so they were persistent. They failed over and over and over again, but they were persistent and determined and dogged to, to conquer air. And so eventually they did. And then there's a story of another person. Uh, It's this guy right here. Do you know his name? Thomas Edison. He was the inventor of the light bulb. He failed over 10,000 times trying to invent the light bulb. In fact, he kept score. And when he had failed the 10,000th time, he came home and informed his wife of what happened. And she said, are you going to throw up your hands and quit? He said, no, I found 10,000 things that won't work. I'm going to continue. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Pretty amazing. Then there was a guy who wrote a book, and he got rejected by 29 different publishers. 29 different publishers rejected him. His name is Theodore Gazelle. Anybody know who that happens to be? 
It happens to be this guy right here. The 30th try, somebody accepted his manuscript. It was called a cat in a hat. The rest is history. 29 times he was rejected. Can you imagine those publishing companies, how much money they lost out on over the years? The Wright brothers, Thomas Edison, Theodore Gazelle, Dr. Seuss, the Apostle Paul. Dogged, determined, undeterred from the task that was before them. Paul's is greater because he was led by God. Paul was determined and dogged and undeterred and persistent because he was led by God. If you look at uh, chapter 20, the previous chapter, uh, picking up in verse 22, he says, Behold, I am bound in spirit. I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me, except the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me that in every city, saying that there are bonds and chains, are bonds and afflictions awaiting me, but I don't consider my life of any account in order that I may finish the course in the ministry that I received from the Lord. Paul said, The Lord had given this, this ministry. My spirit is bound up. It's tied up. I've got a task to do. I'm undeterred. I'm going to accomplish that task. He was directed by God to accomplish that task. God had told him, the Spirit of God had led him, and, and, and he says here, it's plain that this is the ministry that God has called me to complete. It's pretty clear that Paul was called by God to do this. Not only would it help those in need, but it helped further unite the church. By, by the way, there's a commentary on this in 2 Corinthians. There's a commentary on this offering in the book of 2 Corinthians. Jot down your notes, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, here are a couple of verses. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, and he writes about this offering to the church at Corinth. He said, Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. The churches in Macedonia, places like Philippi, Thessalonica. In the, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now, if you read that carefully, those words should not go together. Extreme poverty welling up in rich generosity. I mean, usually people in extreme poverty are not necessarily those who are most generous. And, and Paul says, I want you to know what happened to us when we received an offering from Macedonians. Even though they were in extreme poverty, they gave generously. In fact, Paul goes on the next verse and he says, I testified they gave as much as they were able and even beyond that. Beyond their ability, that's called sacrificial giving. Giving beyond their own ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded. The New American Standard says they begged us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. He says, when we came to the churches at Macedonia, we're receiving an offering so that we can help the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And I knew they didn't have much and I didn't want to take their money, but they were begging us, Paul, please take our money. Paul, please take our money. Paul, please help these brothers and sisters. And out of their extreme poverty, they reflected rich generosity. And he says, they gave beyond their ability. Not only that, they pleaded with us. They begged us, please take what we have and give it to our brothers and sisters. Isn't that refreshing? And that's just refreshing. I, I, there, there are a couple of things I want to say. First of all, I, 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 we are so appreciative for the generosity of the saints at TBC. When there are needs locally and globally, you have stepped, uh, stepped up and met those needs time after time after time after time. In fact, if you look at the bulletin you have in your hand, uh, almost every single month our budget is met, and we don't do things like pledges or bring capital folks or capital campaigns. Uh, you've got $3.7 million in the building fund. The building is actually... Well, we started about three weeks ago, but the rain has stopped it. But uh, there's a building under construction, and you have been generous, and we thank God for that. We thank God for that. But some of you are missing the blessing of giving. 
Some of you are missing the blessing of generosity. Some of you don't give and you're not generous. David Platt wrote a book called Radical. Our elders read it a couple years ago. Our staff read it a couple years ago. If you haven't read it, it's a great read. It'll rock your world in the area of materialism and generosity. In that book, Platt says this, We can give God our money but not our hearts, but we cannot give him our hearts without wanting to give our money. See, that's what was happening in, in, in the churches of Macedonia. They were begging that, they would, that Paul would take their money. When you give God your heart, when you begin to worship the Father and recognize what he's given to you, you're going to be generous right back to him. So here's my question. What does your checkbook say about your love for God and your generosity? What does your checkbook say about that? If you whipped it out right now and looked at what you did with your money, what would that say about your generosity to the Father? Missionaries, ministry of TBC, folks you listen to on the radio or TV, does your checkbook reflect a generous heart? Platt would say this. He says, what's the difference between someone who willfully indulges in sexual pleasures and ignores the biblical commands on purity and someone who selfishly indulges the pursuit of more and more material possessions while ignoring the biblical teaching on giving. What's the difference? He says there is none. We're willing to scream and shout at those who are involved in morality, but shouldn't we be doing the same thing for those who are not generous with the Savior? What does your checkbook say about your heart? See, Jesus put it this way, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. Be generous. Don't be stingy. Be generous and watch God, watch the blessings you'll receive as a result of that. In fact, it's Jesus who said these words. Look at chapter 20 in Acts, verse 35. The previous chapter, verse 35. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. Paul says you've got to be generous, you've got to help the weak. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus who said, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. He said, the blessing is in the giving. The blessing is in the generosity. Now, be careful. If you go home and decide to become generous, be careful how you do that. There's a story of a pastor who, one of the men in his congregation, had a heart attack. He's in the hospital. Uh, he was told the man could not be excited for it while he was in there. And so uh, while he was there, his family received word that a rich relative had passed away and left this man $8 million. His family couldn't decide how to break the news to him because he couldn't handle the excitement because of his heart condition. So they called the pastor and asked him if he would go and subtly break the news to the man. So the pastor went there thinking about what he could do. So he finally asked the man a question. He said, if you inherited $8 million, what would you do with it? And the man stroked his chin for a second. And he said, pastor, I'd give half of it to the church. The pastor had a heart attack and died right there in the spot. <laughs> A couple of lessons, there's more than one way to get rid of a preacher, I guess. But the other is, if you decide to apply this message and not be stingy and generous, uh, don't do it all at once, maybe, or something like that. But, but I commend you for your generosity, and I, I pray that you'll experience the grace of God in that area. You can say, Pastor, you, you have no idea what it's like. I mean, we barely make ends meet. It, it, it's tough. We have more month than we have money a lot of times. Or I've got to have, you know, what are we going to do about vacation this summer? I, I've got a big house payment. I've got, I can just tell you what the scripture says. Scripture says it's blessed to give. And I see an example of folks who,
who gave out of their poverty. And I agree with Platt's statement here. If you give your heart to God, you're going to be generous with everything God's given you. So Paul takes up this offering. In the middle of taking up this offering, though, he is diverted by men. Or these men seek to divert him. Well-intentioned disciples. This kind of reads like a travelogue. In fact, I'm going to pop a map up in front of you. And uh, Jim, can you go to the next slide for me? And here's a map, and you can follow along with it. There's probably one in the back of your Bible as well to, to the places that are here. When it came about that we had parted from them. Now, Paul is with the church elders at Ephesus. There's Ephesus right there. It's modern-day Turkey. And uh, here's Athens and Greece over here. Uh, here's the Macedonian region. You can see Macedonia, uh, Berea, Thessalonica, Philippi. These are the people that gave out of poverty. He went down to Corinth to Athens, and he had gone over to Ephesus. Uh, he just departed the end of Acts chapter chapter 20, from the elders of Ephesus who gathered and see Shura Miletus. So now we're in 21.1. And he says, uh, from there we set sail to Kos, which is right there. And from there we went to Rhodes on the next day. And from there we went to Patera. And so that's right there. So he's gone right along the Mediterranean coast in modern day Turkey. And then he set sail towards Phoenicia all the way to the city of Tyre. And he arrives there. If you look at verse 3, uh, we arrived at Tyre. The ship was unloading cargo. And we stayed there for seven days looking up the disciples. And there he's going to go to Ptolemus. And then from uh, Ptolemus, he's going to head down to Caesarea, uh, Caesarea by the sea, which is right here. In fact, a week ago, two weeks ago today, we were actually Caesarea at the sea where Herod built a summer palace, etc. And he's only about 30 miles to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And so uh, Paul is traveling. This is his third missionary journey. He's stopping at these ports on a ship. He takes a larger ship across the Mediterranean, ends up in Tyre. And that's where we find him in verse 4. After looking up the disciples in Tyre, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Now, wait a minute. We just read in Acts chapter 20, he says, I'm bound in my spirit. The Holy Spirit testifies to me. You're going to have chains and bonds in every city, but this is a ministry, verse 24, that God has given me. So which is it? I mean, what's happening here? The Holy Spirit telling Paul, go, and the Holy Spirit's telling these people, no. I, I mean, what's happening here? How do, you, how do you resolve this tension? I mean, you've got people who are looking at Paul and says, through the Spirit, they're saying No. And Paul's saying, I'm led by the Spirit, and he's saying, go. How do you live with that tension? You just do. So Gary Hagen resolve that. Well, the reality is, I can't. What I think is happening here is that the, the, the church is speaking not a prohibition about him going, but they're speaking a prediction about what's going to happen to him. They're saying, if you go, these things are going to happen, so don't go. The Spirit is saying, don't go. And Paul's saying, it doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter to me if these things are going to happen. I, I know they're going to happen because the Spirit of God has already told me they're going to happen, that trials and afflictions await me in every city I'm going to go through. So that's how I resolve that tension. I, I think it's not a prohibition, but a prediction of what's going to happen. Regardless, he meets with them for seven days. They're together. And then there's a scene in verse 5 reminiscent of what's just happened on the seashore with the Ephesian elders. It says in Tyre, verse 5, it came about our days were ended. We departed. Uh, they came with women and children, escorted us out of the city. We knelt down on the beach. We prayed and we said farewell to one another. So there's another sad, hard goodbye. 
We saw the same thing last week. Uh, he's in Miletus with the elders of the church. In verse 37 of the previous chapter, chapter 20, they wept aloud. They embraced Paul. They repeatedly kissed him. I said last week, one of the reasons I've never left TBC is because I don't want the elders repeatedly kissing me. And so what we see happening here is Paul is moving city to city, meeting with the disciples, encouraging them. They hear the prediction that he's going to be, he's going to be persecuted. They say, Paul, don't go. Don't go. So he leaves Tyre. He arrives in Ptolemus, and, and then he goes to Caesarea by the sea, the last place you see on the map in front of you. And he goes there to Philip's house. Philip was one of the uh, original deacons in Acts chapter 6. He's an evangelist. Philip uh, has four virgin daughters. They're prophetesses. Then this guy named Agabus comes on the scene who is a prophet, verse 10. Now, we have to be honest. Sometimes the scripture is a little bizarre. I mean, we read things in the scripture. We read about guys running around naked in streets. We read about guys who, who do some weird stuff. Well, this Agabus guy is a little strange. He shows up and he says, Paul, I need to borrow your belt. Now, I mean, think about that for a while. Somebody shows up at your house and says, I need your belt. And he starts tying himself up with the belt. Now, that's a little bizarre, isn't it? I mean, people don't normally do those kind of things. And so he ties, them, ties his feet up, ties his hands up, and he says, Paul, what I want you to know, it didn't even say Paul. He, he just says, it's pretty interesting the way he even words this. This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns the belt. Why didn't you say Paul? I mean, it's, it's kind of bizarre. I mean, like, he's looking at him, he's taking the belt off, and he said, the guy that owns the belt, that would be you, uh, you're going to go to Jerusalem, and this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to be tied up just like that. And so immediately, look at the next verse. Everybody, he says, we, that's Lucas writing, he says, we heard this, we all, as well as the local reds, begin begging him not to go to Jerusalem. It's interesting, churches in Macedonia were begging that he would take their money. These people were saying, don't go with the money. Don't go, to, uh, don't go there because trials, persecution, awaits you. Somebody else will take it. Somebody else will do that. Not you. You know, one of the things you've got to say about Paul is he was cherished. I mean, every place he goes, they, uh, they, they, they have farewells with tears and bon voyage things. That's what we're wearing this for today. Our children are moving up to the next area and next week and we're saying bon voyage to the kids in preschool and so, so you, you look at this and they say bon voyage they, they love Paul, Paul was cherished you know as shepherds that's the way we should live our lives you, you're ministering to kids, you're ministering to youth, you're ministering to college or singles you're ministering to adults, you've got a small group in your home leading a ministry, involved in the lives of people, you want to be the kind of shepherd when you leave that, that folks aren't saying, ding dong, the wicked witch is gone, thank God. Yeah, there's that old ditty, some folks bring joy wherever they go, some folks bring joy when they go. Paul was cherished. He was cherished. There's a church that had a very contentious pastor. He'd been their pastor for three years. He was at odds with everybody in the church. He had a very volatile relationship with the congregation, with the staff. One Sunday, he got in the pulpit, and he announced that Jesus was leading him to a different ministry. Immediately, the congregation broke out and sang, What a friend we have in Jesus. <laughs> Paul was cherished. That's the way we should be in our ministries. So they beg him, Don't go. Don't go. They were well intentioned folks. But Paul was willing to face the difficulties when he's directed by God rather than fleeing in disobedience. I, I mean, Paul's perspective is different. Paul's perspective, look at verse 13. 
what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? You're just breaking my heart. And I'm doing what God wants me to do. And you're standing in opposition to it. And you're crying and breaking my heart. And then he tells them, I'm not, I'm ready not just to be bound up. I'm willing to die in Jerusalem for the sake of the gospel. I'm willing to go and not just be tied up like Agabus. I'm willing to die for the sake of the gospel. How do we become that type of person? How do we become like that? I'm willing to give my life for the gospel if that's what it takes. It's easy to do it in this auditorium, in this place. I mean, yeah, I'm willing to give everything. Gary, are you? You know, a great old hymn we sing a lot of times, I surrender all, I surrender all, all to Jesus, I surrender, I surrender all. Do you? Do you? I, I mean, when, I, when we look at Paul, the question we have to ask is, was he faithful or was he foolish? I mean, was he faithful or was he foolish? He's gone to Jerusalem knowing he's going to be arrested, beat up, and everything else. There's a family from TBC. Family, a husband, wife, and three kids. They live in a Hezbollah community right now. They live in the midst of Hezbollah. If you read stuff in the Middle East, you know what Hezbollah is like. They are a godly, faithful couple that call TBC home, and we have sent them as missionaries. In the last five or six months, Chase, our global missions pastor, has called him three times and said, we have plane tickets for you if you want to come home. And they're saying, we're the only light in that community. We're staying. Faithful or foolish? Hey, we've got a young lady who grew up in the mission field. Whenever they furloughed, they come home to TBC. She finished, uh, finished school, and she became a missionary in Afghanistan. There we go. Is that better? And uh, she became a missionary in Afghanistan. About four or five months ago, she was on a mission team with about seven people, two of her compadres. There we go. We got it. Tricks of the trade. You always keep a battery in your pocket. Hearing aid batteries in the other pocket. (laughs) Extra eye in the other pocket. (laughs) Got it all. So our dear friends with Hezbollah, faithful or foolish, our dear sister in Afghanistan, two of her teammates murdered, Missions group did move them all out of the country, but she had been there for a few couple of years. Faithful or foolish? The Brewers and Rogers are ready to take off. They're going to be in a month. They can be there for a couple of years learning Arabic. Then they can move over to UAE. Faithful or foolish? Paul, faithful or foolish? What's it take to have the type of commitment that says, no matter what happens, I'm going to follow the will of God? Especially when we struggle to give them 15 minutes every day in a quiet time. Pastor, you want me to give up one night a week and be in a small group? Are you kidding me? Do you know how busy I am? You know the stuff our kids are involved in? And you expect me to give up one night? 
faithful or foolish. You see, when we look at Paul, there are those waving their hands saying, you're crazy, Paul. The Spirit has warned you, you're going to have death and destruction all around you. You're going to be persecuted. And he says, no. God has said, you need to go. So I'm going. We wrestle to find 15 minutes a day to give to God. We wrestle to give a night. We wrestle to give generously to the work of God. We wrestle to the little orange sheet to, to, to commit to teaching kids or just rocking babies in a nursery for three months. And we struggle with that. I love missionary biographies or stories of missions. And uh, one of the stories I read a couple of years ago was a story about the early 20th century missionaries who became known as the one-way missionaries. They were called one-way missionaries for two reasons. When they went to the mission field, they bought one-way tickets, not a return ticket. And when they packed their stuff, they didn't pack it in a trunk. You know what they packed it in? Coffin. They went because they knew they wouldn't come back. And so they were called one-way missionaries. story is told of one of those missionaries. It's a great read. Pick up the biography of A.W. Milne. He went to a tribe of headhunters in New Herbides. Every other missionary that had gone to that tribe, over a dozen of them, had been martyred before he went. He went there, and he faithfully ministered the gospel for 35 years. When the tribe buried him, they wrote on his tombstone, when he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. Faithful or foolish? You imagine when he went to his parents and said, I'm headed to the mission field. Everybody else had gone to this place and died. But God called me. How many people you think said, you're a fool? Faithful or foolish? Jim Elliott lost his life at age 28 in 1956 at the hands of the Aka Indians in Ecuador. A handful of missionaries, there were five of them, I think, who went down to Ecuador and they made contact with the Aka Indians. Eventually they landed on a beach. They thought they would have a relationship with the Akas. They had been giving them gifts out of the airplane and When they got there, they lost their lives. All five men murdered on the beach. Jim Elliott, who was at Wheaton College at the time when he wrote this, said in his diary, his his journal, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Faithful or foolish? How do we live a life? How do we live our lives that say, even if I'm bound up, that's nothing. I'm willing to die. When we struggle to give God 15 minutes a day, one night a week, a little bit of our checkbooks, I would say that's the foolishness of our culture. And if you walk with Christ and honor Christ, your life will be the opposite. So Paul says, I'm gone. So I love what happens next. The church comes together in verse 14, and since he couldn't be persuaded, they said, it's the will of the Lord. And so they did it. I I love the fact that Paul didn't bolt and run. The community didn't kick him out. They didn't send a delegation ahead of him and said, you know, this missionary guy, Paul, he's so stubborn that you don't need to receive him. But what they said is, man, he's prayed it through. He's convinced us it's God's will. And so you see the community coming together, and there is blessing in the next two verses. He takes off for Jerusalem, and next week we'll pick up the story, and I'll teach you what happens next. So what do we do with this passage? Let me give you three quick lessons, then we'll go home. Lesson number one. Choose the pathway of obedience over disobedience. If you're facing difficulty and you're directed by God to go there, 
Choose the pathway of obedience instead of disobedience. When I think of Paul's obedience, the contrast that I think about is Jonah. Remember Jonah's story? God calls Jonah and he tells him he's got a job for him. He wants to go to Nineveh, but Jonah doesn't like the Ninevites. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh. It's a dangerous place to go. Ninevites kill people just like the people in New Herbides did. And, and so Jonah goes to the ticket office, plops down his American Express and buys a ticket going the other way. And, and let me let you know a secret. When God wants you to do something, he always gets his man or woman. He always does it. And Jonah's living this life of disobedience. You remember what happens. He goes out to sea, headed the wrong direction. There's a storm that comes up. All the, all the sailors are praying to their gods. It's a roulette of gods. I mean, they're rolling the table, and they're praying to their gods, and, and, and Jonah's sound asleep. They wake him up, and he says, the problem here is me. I'm running from my God. They throw him overboard, and you remember what happens. He's swallowed by this great fish, and he ends up going down in the drink. And I, I love what Max Licato says. He's in the belly of this fish. There are two ways out, and neither one's attractive. <laughs> He's surrounded by what he doesn't have, and that's guts. And, and, and so here's Jonah. The whale barfs him up, and he becomes whale barf. And he goes, and Nineveh preaches the gospel. There's repentance from the palace to the paupers. And, and, and then the last scene is Jonah pouting. And he said, God, I knew you were going to save this bad people, these terrible people. That's why I didn't want to go in the first place. And so you've got Jonah here living this disobedient life. And then you've got Paul who says, I don't care what obstacles await me. I don't care how difficult the circumstance. God's called me. I'm going to do it. So are you like Jonah or are you like Paul? It's an area of your life where God has called you into obedience and you're refusing to obey. Where your heart has become hard and you're saying, nope, not me. It may be becoming the husband God needs you to be, wants you to be, the wife God has called you to be, the mom or the dad God calls you to be. It may be picking up one of these booklets in the hallway, closer walk, daily walk, daily bread, so you can start spending that 15 minutes a day with God. Because you said, no, 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 I'm not going to do it, or you haven't done it. Maybe it's repenting of a secret sin. Maybe it's running from an immoral relationship. That maybe you've got alcohol issues and you haven't admitted it to anybody, but you know it's a problem. You're getting drunk every weekend, maybe every night, and you haven't dealt with it. Maybe your heart has been pricked as we've talked about missions and you've said, no, God, not me, somebody else. And maybe it's restoring a broken relationship. This past uh, week, uh, I, I had, uh, we killed the fatted calf. Actually, we, we ate the fatted chicken. We didn't have beef, we had chicken. And it occurred because in one of my messages, I talk about the theme of reconciliation often. And there was a dear brother in the crowd that day, and uh, his heart was pricked. He was at odds with his very best friend for about a decade. And he was pricked by that message, and he got in contact with his friend. He had tried to restore the relationship before. The man in that responded, this time he did. And so they get together uh, within the last three weeks, and they reconciled a relationship that had been broken for 10 years. And so we went together. He said, he said uh, I'm excited. I said, let's go kill the fatted calf together. So we killed the fatted chicken and rejoiced before God and what he had done. What about you in obedience? Are you like Jonah or you like Paul? Maybe it's generosity. We talked about generosity today. Your checkbook reflects your stinginess and not your generosity before God. Second lesson, seek unity. I'm impressed with Paul and the church community here. They are working through their conflict, and rather than dividing, they became united. Uh, one author I read recently says this, that the, the mark of true community is not the absence of conflict, but the presence of a reconciling spirit. I like that. 
As an elder board, we have a policy of anonymity. In the 33 years I've been here, we've not moved forward with a single decision as an elder board unless we're unanimous on that decision. That takes an amazing amount of reconciling spirit to do that. And by God's grace, our body has been blessed. And I think our body has, has, has benefited from godly men who are strong leaders being willing to lay aside their personal agendas for the good of the body. A reconciling spirit. And finally, I think we have to ask the question, who are we listening to? Who are we listening to? We're listening to God and not man. You see, when, if Paul had listened to man, he wouldn't have gone to Jerusalem. I, I think of David. Uh, we were in the caves of Engedi recently where David hid from Saul. If you remember that story in 1 Samuel 24, Saul was chasing David. David goes to hide from Saul. And having just been in Engedi, there are multiple caves. Caves of Engedi. There's a waterfall back there. We walk about a mile and a half to get this waterfall. And, and there are all these caves. Well, David and his men see Saul coming. They hide in one of those caves. And once again, I love the scriptures. The scriptures are so just out there sometimes. It says... Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. He went to the bathroom. Literally, in the Hebrew, it says he went in to cover his feet. That's what it says. I mean, he had to go in and take care of business. Out of all the caves, you know which one he chose to go into? What he didn't realize, when he squats, there are 200 eyes on him. I mean, you have an embarrassing situation. I mean, he didn't even realize what's happening there. But in that cave, the mighty men of David are popping him in the ribs and saying, look at what God has given you. He's saying, David, go get him. Now's the time to get him. He's, he's literally in a very vulnerable position right now. And David cuts a little piece of cloth off his robe. That's how close they are. And David recognizes that he had listened to the voice of Minra and the voice of God. And he said, I'm wrong. I shouldn't have touched God's anointed. Which voice are you listening to? Then you fast forward to Second Chronicles chapter 26. It's one of my favorite sections in God's Word. It's a story of a young king named Joash, Second Chronicles 24. In Second Chronicles 24, Joash becomes king over Israel when he is seven years old. How do you like that? You complain about your leadership and government now? A seven-year-old king. I've seen seven-year-olds who are kings. Believe me, I've seen them. They're not good. They rule houses. That's a whole other topic. For another day, maybe Father's Day in two weeks, I'll preach on that. <laughs> How not to let your seven-year-old be king. But, but he becomes king. Well, what happens? Well, he, he's got a godly mentor. The godly mentor is named Jehoiada. Jehoiada is a high priest. And it says, as long as Jehoiada was alive, Joash followed the ways of God. But you know what happened when Jehoiada died? Joash, the king, begins to listen to the voices of terrible counselors, counselors from the world, and he leads the nation of Israel from faithfulness and idolatry. In fact, the prophet called, sent to call him back to faithfulness was Jehoiada's son, so his stepbrother. You know what he does to his stepbrother? He murders him. Check it out, Second Chronicles 24. It reads like a Jerry Springer story. Because he's listening to the voices of men rather than the voice of God. If God has called you to do something, you don't have to pray about it. You do it. You do it. Listening to the voice of God, not man. Walking in obedience, not disobedience. Seeking unity with a reconciling spirit when there could be division. When I look at this chapter, I ask the question, foolish or faithful? What are you committed to? So I'm finishing the sermon up on Friday. On my computer pops up 
the LSU football schedule for the fall. I've just typed out these words. What are you committed to? Every fall, I've got the same ritual. I don't schedule weddings or any of that stuff until I get the LSU football schedule for the fall. (laughs) So I've just typed out, Gary, what are you committed to? Typed out those words. Schedule pops up, literally pops up on my computer. I know what you're committed to. I know what you're committed to. One of my close friend's daughter has scheduled a wedding on the LSU Alabama day. (laughs) Who would do that? (laughs) I mean, who would do that? So I'm looking at that. I'm looking at my message over here. What are you committed to? That's my question to you. That's how I put the end of my sermon. Ask them what they're committed to. Boom. Hey, Gary, what are you committed to? What are you committed to? Foolish stuff or faithful stuff? Father, we pray that we be found faithful every day of our lives. Sometimes when we follow you, the world will see us as foolish. Help us to accept that. Sometimes we live in the midst of Hezbollah when it's not safe. And it looks like foolishness, but it's really faithfulness. And sometimes you tell us to go to Jerusalem where it's dangerous. It looks like foolishness and we want to stop it, but it's really faithfulness. And sometimes we pursue broken relationships and we've been cheated on, been lied to, and the world deems us as foolish. We're just trying to be faithful. And sometimes we seek with reconciling spirits and compromise and are willing to do things that the world looks upon as foolishness. Sometimes we are generous and the world says, why? We become servants and give of time when we're so busy. And to the world it looks like foolishness. But we pray we're doing it out of faithfulness. What are you committed to? My heart was convicted this week. Relooking at priorities and what's important, matter of perspective, what matters. What about yours? I'm not sure how God's spoken to you this morning. If it's to give half of $8 million, we'll take that, but don't tell me all at once. But we do pray you'll be generous. We do pray you'll be faithful. We do pray you'd honor God with your life by serving. But all that's done because of who Jesus is. Because of your love for him. And if you're here today and you're not sure if Jesus is your savior, you're not sure if you truly know him. We can resolve that right now. In your heart, that can be resolved eternally. Right now, you can pray with me. Lord Jesus, I desire for you to be my Savior. I ask you for the forgiveness of my sin. I desire to be a follower of you, Christ. 
I thank you. I thank you for being my Savior. I pray that you'll be an obedient Paul, not a disobedient Jonah, whatever God's placed on your heart this day. In Christ's name, amen.